Welcome to Flatbush in Maine, a podcast from Brooklyn Historical Society. Where we make history the Brooklyn way. Each month, Flatbush in Maine digs into Brooklyn's quirky, surprising, diverse history, linking it to the most salient issues shaping our world today. And we give a glimpse into how we make and preserve history every day here at Brooklyn Historical Society, a 154-year-old museum, archives, and urban history center. We are your hosts, Julie Golia, Director of Public History at Brooklyn Historical Society, and Zahir Ali, Oral Historian at Brooklyn Historical Society. Meet us at the intersection of Brooklyn's past and present. On May 19, 2017, Brooklyn Historical Society hit a big milestone in its 154-year history. We opened Brooklyn Historical Society Dumbo, a second satellite location along the Brooklyn waterfront. The museum is housed in Empire Stores, a 19th century warehouse with a rich history and many stories to tell. In this episode, we're going to introduce you to our new second home and share how we piece together its rich history. Walking around, you, you can kind of get the sense that there are these echoes of a past that uh, is no longer here, right? Um, tell us, you know, what kind of stories does a building like this tell about itself? One of my favorite things to do in this space is to just find some of the graffiti on these posts um, and put my hand on one of the posts and close my eyes and imagine this space filled with bags of sugar and coffee and grain and hogsheads or barrels. And then, of course, hundreds of men and you know, dozens of draft animals working to move these things in and out. Again, just the bread and butter of American commerce has its roots in the building that we're standing right now. And in the 20th century, um, the neighborhood sort of adjacent to what is Dumbo, now called Vinegar Hill, continued to be a place where many different people lived and built institutions and communities and continue to live to this day. Sand Street was exciting in those days. You had a lot of tattoo parlors. Because you had all the Navy activity, a lot of the ships came in there. A lot of tattoo parlors, a lot of bars. Remember, my father used to go to a barber shop on Sand Street. And then I used to go, sometimes I would have to go and, and get him and was like going to this place where there was all these men. It was like, I would run, make a beeline to the other end. But there were a lot of bars, a lot of tattoo parlors. We're coming to you from 55 Water Street Empire Stores, where Brooklyn Historical Society has just opened a second location called BHS Dumbo. And I'm very excited to be here with my co-host, Julie Golia, who has been doing tons of research on this. In fact, I think ever since I've known you, know. you've been researching I know. this building. I don't and remember so. what it was like <laughs> before. But it's so cool because um, it's this exciting time for our institution and and certainly, I think, for people who are interested in these the history of, of this uh, waterfront. For people who may not be familiar with this area, um, where where exactly are we? So we're here in a neighborhood called Dumbo, named not after the elephant, um, <laughs> but actually after the physical location. Dumbo stands for down under the Manhattan Bridge overpass. And here we are between two bridges, the Brooklyn Bridge and the Manhattan Bridge, looking at a really spectacular stretch of the waterfront through the arched windows of this warehouse. 
And down under the bridge makes us sound like trolls. I know. But um, I know. we're not. And and if you're if you're not familiar with this part of Brooklyn, you should definitely come visit. And if you are familiar, you should come visit again because it is so beautiful. Yeah, and it's a real contrast, I would say, to where our headquarters is. So um, Brooklyn Historical Society's headquarters is in Brooklyn Heights, which was really, um, as we've talked about in the past, really one of the first commuter suburbs in American history. It's a largely residential neighborhood, beautifully preserved brownstones. And down here feels really different, doesn't it? Yes, yes. This is an industrial neighborhood. And so we're looking at warehouses like the one that we're standing in. Factories were in this neighborhood. And then all the sort of subsidiary businesses like coal um, factories um, supporting the high industry that took place here in Dumbo. And of course, today, that industry has been transformed into sort of a post-industrial neighborhood landscape that we see now. Yeah, and you know, walking around, you you can kind kind of get the sense that there are these echoes of a past that uh, is no longer here, right? Um, Tell us, you know, what kind of stories does a building like this tell about itself? Well, the beautiful thing about both of our buildings now, um, our headquarters and now our second location, is that they're primary sources that are reflective of the period in which they were they were built, in which they are functioning. And so in a lot of ways, we can look around us right now and we can look at this warehouse um, as a piece of evidence to, to analyze. And so the first thing I think for us to think about is the bigger structure, right? So we're looking at a building that is actually made up of seven sort of warehouses that are all attached to each other. We're in one of the four-story ones. The four-story section was built in 1860. And then there was sort of an addition put on, a five-story addition in 1885. And it's marked by a couple things. First of all, these enormous arch windows that we see on the outside of the building that allowed both air to come through and for goods to be sort of hauled in through the front of it to be stored in the sort of the cavernous depths inside. Um, When we look outside here, we can also see the beautiful schist walls um, that mark the sort of the boundaries of each of these warehouses. Now, for for people who aren't familiar, um, because I certainly am not, um, what is schist? Sure. Schist is basically a kind of a rock. Um, It's a metamorphic rock. And it Um, A lot of actually northern Manhattan and the Bronx is made out of schist. It's built on this sort of rocky schist land. Down here in Brooklyn, especially as you move further south, um, we're sort of on the edge of a glacier plain. And so we have more of a sandy and rocky um, sort of land down here. As you move north, um, you um, come onto a terrain that is actually really bumpy and rocky. And so in the 19th century, when city planners basically planned to lay out the grid that it defines Manhattan, Manhattan and to even out its land, enormous amounts of schist were pulled out of Manhattan and in a lot of cases used in different kind of municipal municipal um, construction projects around the city. Um, we don't know for sure where the schist of the walls of Empire Stores actually came from, but it's very likely that it was a local rock that was pulled from some other project that was taking place. Uh, it's kind of amazing to step back and think about the the physical transformation that marked the city of New York and the city of Brooklyn in the 19th century, movement of good of good materials from one place and to, to fuel other Yeah, it's almost kind of like a, a recycling. Of, it's green. Of, yeah, it's your lead yeah bi- that's, that's pretty your, cool. It's your lead building um, of the 19th century. <laughs> it is. But, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned Glacier, and, and I, of course, at least know a little bit about um, what that means in terms of where we're actually standing. And if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, a few hundred years ago, this would have been water. 
there. Yeah, so we would have been standing basically <laughs> before 1796, where we're standing right now in BHS Dumbo, we would have been standing in open water. Wow. And this is not unusual to hear. So about 70,000 acres of greater New York City are man-made land, are wow. essentially landfill. And basically the land that we're standing on right now was laid out in a series of three landfill episodes. The first one happened around 1796, um, creating Water Street. Um, we get why it was named All right. that now, right? It's a very literal was, name. Straight up water. The original water line, or what you see in maps sometimes called the ancient water line, actually was sort of a softer line um, that stood between present day Water Street and Front Street. And then the last landfill episode actually allowed for Plymouth Street in front of the building to get built um, to lay out the waterfront largely as we know it today. So, why did they do this? Because the commercial waterfront was growing. They didn't want rocky sh or sandy shores. They didn't want the marshlands that would have defined the natural waterfront. They needed to build piers, docks, and bulkheads. So again, this is just part of a larger, just remarkable transformation of the natural environment of New York that took place in the late 18th and early 19th century and up into the 20th. Now, why would it be advantageous to build on such, you know, kind of Somewhat unstable, initially unstable territory. Yeah. Well, actually, what's interesting is how stable it is. So let's let me point out something else that's actually built on landfill. The entire World Trade Center area is wow. landfill, right? Wow. Yeah. So yeah, 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 um, I true. mean, it's really quite remarkable to think about how much of New York is built on what is essentially fake land. But there are a couple things to consider when we're thinking about the history of landfilling the waterfront. The first is, you know, one of the most lucrative commodities in New York's history is, of course, real estate, right? Um, this is true in the past. This is very true today. And there's a, you know, in the, in the late 19th and early 20th century, one way of thinking about this was actually about building up. Right, the establishment of steel frame buildings, the ability the ability to build skyscrapers to basically make money out of the sky. But of course, another way of thinking about this is to build out, right? To build out land along the waterfront, basically creating a commodity, a real estate commodity, um, by you know, basically putting garbage into the ground and filling it up to build on top of it. And of course, the waterfront is an important place to do this because that land is incredibly important to a port city where most of its commerce takes place on the waterfront. So let's let's look around in this space that we are in. And, um, you know, one of the first things that when you come in, you see some of the, um, I would say, old structure mm -hmm. preserved. I mean, it's, it's really cool because, you know, a lot of times when we do place-based history, it's kind of in the abstract. It's what documents yep. say about this place. It's what people say about this place. And, and now we actually get to, to, to listen or, or read what the place says about itself. So one of the things that um, that is here when you walk in is this 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 what looks like a tool a, a huge tool a big tool a big tool with like gears and what could have been wheels yep, and pulleys legs. yeah what yep. what is this 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 thing so this enormous eleven foot thing that we're looking at in our <laughs> space is basically a hoisting winch. Um, you're absolutely right. You can see that there's a large wheel and then a series of gears. And then stretching across two A-frame legs is essentially a spool that can sort of take up or let out a rope. And the way that this thing worked is it didn't wasn't originally here in our space. It was actually up on the top floor. And there was one in each of the seven warehouse buildings. 
essentially the way that it worked is that there was a train that was draped over this big wheel here and if you pulled the chain it sort of turned a series of gears that turned the spool that took up the rope that was basically an elevator that mm. lifted pallets up through a trapdoor underneath to bring these very heavy goods sometimes a several tons at a time up to the top floors otherwise it would have been men carrying things up staircases wow so this kind of ingenious, simple machine was used well into the 20th century, even though it looks quite primitive. And this is the originals of here. Wow. So this is not a replica. This is not a replica. And I have to shout out props to our staff and some of the, the folks that we work with. We completely disassembled this winch from where it was on the top floor of a different warehouse brought all the pieces down here to our space and reassembled it so that our visitors could have a true and visceral sense of the way a building like this worked. Now, the other thing that you see when you walk around this space um, are these beautiful posts. Now, it's interesting. I say beautiful because there is this kind of um, ways that these these really rudimentary structures become aesthetically valuable totally now, right? no one in the no one in the 19th century when this would have, was built would have ever been like this is so beautiful this <laughs> is, is so is. cool <laughs> they threw these buildings up yeah. like they were nothing they're very structurally right, secure right. but they're they're workplaces no it's true and you know it's like walking around here i i remember the first time i walked in this space i was like oh, i would I would kill to live in a place like this. <laughs> and of course, like go back a hundred years and nobody wants to live they where they work, right? They're exactly. like, please, that's where we work. Nobody wants to live there. But but in the on these posts, um, which have the these are the original posts, and of course that speaks to the um integrity of the structure itself but there there are all these markings tell tell us a little bit about what these markings mean yeah one of my favorite things to do in this space is to just find some of the graffiti on these posts um and put my hand on one of the posts and close my eyes and imagine this space filled with bags of sugar and coffee and grain and hogsheads which are barrels and then of course hundreds of men and you know dozens of draft animals working to move these things in and out again just the bread and butter of american commerce has its roots in the building that we're standing right now and so these posts which we value today for their sort of beautiful lines and their sort of like evocative 19th century aesthetic were kind of just blackboards mm. for the workers that worked in empire stores so if we look closely we can see lots of different kinds of writing we see ink which is mostly 19th century and then chalk which is usually early 20th century and look at this here this is just addition and subtraction they're adding up the number of bags that would have been stored in this particular spot or in that particular spot um, by the 20th century, they're mostly storing coffee in the space. And so they, these bags, because coffee can actually stay, it doesn't go bad for a really long time. It can sit in a cool warehouse for like 10 or 20 years. Wow. Um, these might have been here for many, many years while coffee traders across the river in Manhattan were basically trading their coffee back and forth as a commodity. These beans might have stayed here for years and years and years. So these tallies might just be keeping track of the number of bags that should be mm. that should be situated in this particular place. And how did they keep it cool? How did they keep the, the building? Cool? Again, the evidence of how they did this is all around us. So we talked a little bit about the schist walls before. Schist is a very thick and dense rock. 
block des- uh, designed basically to keep out the heat and humidity that we, of course, know marks the impending summer that we feel in New York. And then these arch windows, um, they're beautiful. They're sort of a beautiful architectural detail that we admire today. But there are windows both on the front of the building and the back of the building. On the front of the building, they were used to load in and out sometimes. But when you open both the front and the back, it allowed for very um, sort of simple air circulation through. So we have to remember this is an age before refrigeration. This entire building was designed to be kept like a tomb. One of the other things that, um, I mean, thinking about these markings again on these posts, measurements does, don't seem to be the only thing that's, that's on true. here, right? That's I, true. I mean, it's what's really interesting. I mean, I got to and... say, you know, I, I, I guess I'm impressed with the workers who used it for that purpose, like to, to mark and count bags, because I, well, I shouldn't put myself out there, but I would have been tagging the post yep. with like, yeah, I leave your mark, I your historical that. mark. Yeah, I would have like, <laughs> like scribbled the name or two on there, you know. There's but, definitely so, yeah. names. There's definitely yeah. initials. A few other places in the building, I found some kind of dirty words. <laughs> so in a way, actually, the graffiti that we see throughout the building actually reflects the change of the building over time. So um, in the 19th century, this is a general storage warehouse where the workers who worked here were carrying in bags of sugar and grain. Um, this was a place that was a center of what they called at the time the Calcutta trade. And so we had sort of jute and linseed oil coming in from um, uh, from India. There were animal skins coming from the Argentinian pampas. It was just a, a panoply of goods from all around the world. By the 20th century, the building shifts to being most mostly a coffee storage space. The building, it's important to know, never functioned as a factory. No roasting took place here. It simply stored things. And by the 20th century, it was owned by Arbuckle Coffee. And so it was storing basically green, which are unroasted coffee beans, before they were basically moved over a few blocks to be roasted in Arbuckle's warehouses that were sort of closer to John Street, a little bit further east of here. But Arbuckle sells the building in 1945. And it's basically at that point that the building is empty until now. Mm. So the building was empty for about empty and unused for about 70 years, which is quite remarkable to think about Um, and very actually pretty rare in in New York. And during that time, the building didn't sit untouched, of course. Right. Um, People came inside. There were squatters. um, And then by the 1960s and 70s, um, the building actually gets part a landmark designation by the 1970s. And by that time, Dumbo itself is changing again, and it's becoming a sort of a haven for artists. So I think one of the fascinating things about the building is that it be- then becomes a different kind of canvas mm-hmm. for graffiti mm-hmm. artists mm-hmm. who did unbelievably beautiful work on the shutters um, in the building, some of which um, we're actually going to be featuring in the exhibition that we're opening here in the end of the year. And if visitors came today, um, they would see how a new generation of artists were inspired by the waterfront and and this neighborhood uh, in an exhibition that we have ongoing until September entitled Shifting Perspectives. So we invite everyone to come not only to see this exhibition, uh, see the, the amazing photographs hanging up here, but also look at the winch Feel the post, see if you can channel like Julie does back to a, a century ago, the workers who measured their coffee beans and bags of, of, of storage material um, and just to kind of absorb this amazing history. 
Love this podcast? Then head over to iTunes and search for Flatbush in Maine to subscribe, rate, and review us. This increases our rankings and makes it easier for interested listeners like you to find us. I guess one of the interesting things for us to think about is how do you reconstruct the history of this place? You know, a lot of the the histories that that we kind of gestured towards in the first segment. Um, tell tell us, Julie, how does one begin to find this building? Yeah, finding the history, doing almost a biography of a place has inherent challenges, but what's even more difficult about finding the history of a building like Empire Stores is that it was never meant to be significant. It was never meant to be standout. It was never meant to be architecturally um, remembered. It was a throwaway building. I mean, literally, it was a building that was put up only to to wrap itself around the lucrative commodities that were inside of it. The owners of it cared only about that basic functionality. So when we even set out to figure out even just the basic question of when the actual Empire Store structure that now exists was built, it was difficult to find because no one cared to document it, right? So we this is not a project where we were going to go to manuscript collections. Mm-hmm. We looked for them, couldn't find them. Mm-hmm. So we turned to one of my favorite kinds of things that we have at Brooklyn Historical Society, which is maps. Because we were also wanting to put together not just a history of the building, right, but Mm -hmm. a history of the place Mm -hmm. itself. So we've pulled a few maps today for us to look at, which we're going to, of course, post to our show notes. And I think, you know, my one of the reasons I love maps so much is because they're they're beautiful. Right. And they're they're each map is different and reflects something about the moment in which it was created as well as the sort of the data in it. Very few of us are trained to use maps as an archival source in terms of like how do you extract uh, historical data from a map. I'm mostly, like you said, mostly used to using text, right? Um, and so I'm really interested to hear as you walk us through these maps of like what kind of information can yeah. be gleaned from a map. Maps are both... Um, they're at once I think like a real challenge like you say like they like sometimes people don't know exactly how to unlock them but they're also ubiquitous and and accessible and I think sort of like visually legible to young people um, even though the majority of maps that young people today interact with are digital Um, so there's a there's a familiarity with them that I think makes them you know, ripe for ed- for for education opportunities. So I'm just throwing that out to our teaching listeners. Okay, there. so let's with that, let's dive into how some of these maps help us tell this story. So the first map that we're looking at is actually not from our archives. It's from New York Public Library, which, by the way, has a remarkable collection of digitized maps. So this is a 1797 map um, in the Stokes Collection at New York Public Library, which is a new and accurate plan of the city of New York. Now, remember, Brooklyn at the time is not in the city of New York. Mm-hmm. A lot of times when we're getting information about Brooklyn, it's from like the bottom right corner <laughs> <laughs> of a map that but is that's primarily... Good. That's part of that orientation yeah. of like understanding where we were in the yep. New York City, Manhattan-centered, right. you know, kind of perspective. So what, do you, so what do you notice about the way Brooklyn is depicted in the 1797 map? 
Well, it doesn't seem to have a lot of stuff in it. <laughs> it's pretty empty. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. It seems, you know, I mean, there are a lot of dots that I'm yeah. assuming are terrain, right? But yeah. I don't see a lot of structure represented here. Yeah. So first of all, of course, obviously, there's no Empire stores on this map, right? Because no building named Empire stores. In fact, very few warehouses actually existed in Brooklyn at this time. In fact, probably no commercial warehouses existed at this time. Um it's mostly undeveloped. You see almost no houses. You see one road leading to the ferry, mm-hmm. right? The ferry, by the way, is about you know 500 feet away from where the Empire Stores is right now. Um, and that was the main the main thoroughfare was the 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 basically the ferry to the much more densely populated booming city of Manhattan across the way. I also noticed these kind of in, indents in the land around what is today Dumbo. Do you see these kind of dots here? Is it mm-hmm. here? So I have found evidence that uh, this area of Brooklyn was known for th- to have these kind of hilly, um, sandy hills that people would sail on pleasure vessels across from Manhattan to Brooklyn and have lunch under the trees on these <laughs> hilly sites. So it's just another way right. that the natural environment here had been kind of paved away. Right, right. So there there aren't many structures. You know, it looks like a pretty natural uh, landscape. landscape. Yep. But there is this one kind of bar or line yeah. um, across in the middle. Tell us what that is. It almost is. looks like a, like a marina at first, yeah. right? Like yeah, a basin. Like a, yeah, yeah. This is actually a rope walk. And a rope walk is an early factory. Brooklyn was basically known for having these sort of long stretches in which um, master rope makers would actually weave rope by hand. You needed a long, skinny space. And so this is evidence of early industry in Brooklyn. This okay. area in the 1780s and 1790s is actually known as Olympia. It was established by the Sands family and was an early working class area and had some of the earliest sort of factories um, in the area. So Dumbo later becomes this kind of industrial place. This is the most, the earliest sort of incarnation of that. But of course, no Empire stores. In fact, Empire stores would have been, as we said in the first segment, in the water, floating outside. That's right. That's right. Now that you've kind of given, gotten a sense of the place that the building is located in. How do you then move from there to kind of hone in on on finding this? Yeah, the stuff? next question, I guess, is how did have how did humans alter the land yeah. to make empire stores possible? So our next map actually shows us um, shows us the empire stores site after that had happened. We had talked about the landfilling mm-hmm. of the of the waterfront in this area as taking place between around 1796, so right before this first map was made, and then um, it, it, the last one was in the 1850s. If we look at this 18 map we can see the waterfront largely as it was as as it is today um and my favorite thing about this map is that you can see that the the map maker actually took care to draw in the quote-unquote ancient waterline right wow and it is quite a chunk it's quite inland or what we would say now inland right it's quite it's a significant portion they made in some cases uh the two as many as three streets pushing Mm -hmm. out towards Mm -hmm. the waterfront and then of course i think that the big difference here is this water line is this kind of undulating line the waterfront we see here is quite different right yeah yeah. It's these kind of right angles, mm-hmm, it's building mm-hmm, out piers, mm-hmm. creating bulkheads. So it's not just about building the waterfront out, it's about actually transforming the nature of the place where water right, meets land. Right, right. So the actual coastline is altered 
the coastline becomes a coastline of right angles. Yeah. That is, of course, not the natural coastline that was New York in the 18th century. So the next map um, looks like the blueprint for a building. Mm -hmm. And this building, or in this blueprint, it says Empire Stores. Now, this is dated 1861. Mm -hmm. And the building that is now currently Empire Stores, where BHS Dumbo is located, if I remember correctly, um, you said it was built in 1869. Correct. So what's going on? Yeah, what's going on here? What's going on here? Well, this is actually a very close zoom in of a fire insurance map. And a fire insurance map, the original page I of this I already feel like showed, I know where you're going by saying fire insurance map. I know, map. right? <laughs> I, I, love, I love fires. <laughs> um, so this is a really close zoom in on what would have depicted blocks and blocks of buildings that would have comprised the neighborhood that we now call Dumbo. So I just like zoomed in really closely mm -hmm. on this. You can see how much incredible detail they have in these fire insurance maps. But I think what's notable here is that like you've you know you've we've been in our empire stores building this is not the layout yes, of the interior correct, of our correct. building so what we're looking at is actually an earlier incarnation of the empire stores building this is the previous empire oh, stores okay um largely occupying the same block configured completely differently and one of the big questions that we had was like, what happened to this building? Why didn't, why doesn't this building still stand there? Like, did the owners, the owners' names were the Nesmiths, did the Nesmiths tear it down to build a new, better one? Or why would they even spend the money on that stuff? And we couldn't find the answer in maps. So at this point, we went back to the computer and we went to newspapers. And we learn about exactly how we lost that building um, in uh, newspaper records from um, the end of September in 1868. And what we found was that throughout the 1860s, there were actually a couple different fires mm. at Empire Stores that burned not only the building, but the goods inside it to the ground. Wow. But this particular fire that we're looking at from the Herald, um, it's reported on October 1st, 1868, is the one that ultimately destroys our building that is depicted in this map here. And, you know, sensationalist press of the 19th century is a great gift to us when we're talking about <laughs> fires because we got tons of details on the way this the way this conflagration went down. It looks like it was basically discovered by a customs inspector who would have been sort of doing regular rounds mm -hmm, to make sure mm -hmm, that the goods inside mm -hmm. of each of these warehouses were protected, right? And he basically notices like a little bit of smoke coming out of the yeah, warehouse, Yeah, right? Yeah, so the, the article says that the customs inspector... Uh, noticed a, quote, slight smoke issuing from the cracks of the closed iron shutters of the second east window of the upper story. And then newspaper, the you know, newspaper reports on this um, proceed to list all of the possible things exactly. that could have contributed to this yes. fire, which is yeah. quite uh, a list of, you know, anyone looking at this list would see fire hazard written You'd all over it. it. Right. You know, there's like saturated oil on the floor. There are bales of wool. Um, there is there grass. Yep. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, it's no surprise then that the, the story says, quote, sparks flew in every direction and the heat was so intense on the docks. Uh, and it later says another article, a, a part says um, flames shot upwards, causing a brilliant illumination. Yeah. So and, and don't you. It's so be it sounds lovely. <laughs> <Yeah>. Right. <laughs> so the important thing to know is that fires like these long Brooklyn's waterfront were a dime a dozen mm. because so many of the things that were being stored in the warehouses were 
flammable. The good thing for the Nesmiths, the owner of this place, is that they were insured up the wazoo. Um, so they basically were able to, and and so would their, the people who were storing there. Mm-hmm. They also mm-hmm. would have had insurance mm-hmm. on the goods in the space. The Nesmiths cleared the land. Within four months, they had built a new building. And um, when we go to Brooklyn Historical Society, that's the building that you're standing wow. in, the 1869 structure. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was interesting. So we talked about like you knew what the, we knew what the last use of the building was yep. in terms mm-hmm. of storage and, and that it was coffee. I guess these kind of sources help us understand what was going on before that. Right. Exactly. So what exactly. were some of the, you know, based on these kinds of reports, tell us what we learn about what was being stored in the building. Yeah. I mean, so uh, an important thing for us to think about is what are these things yeah. and what do they tell us about Brooklyn's economy? And so by the late 19th century, um, Brooklyn's waterfront is not just a site of warehouses. It's also a site of factories. Right. And so when I see this list of commodities, I see all the things that they're sort of going to become. All of this wool um, and cotton that was being stored there is fueling a garment industry that mm-hmm. is raging across mm-hmm. the river mm-hmm. in New York City, mm-hmm. but also exists in Brooklyn at the time. And it also ties Brooklyn into a, a, southern, economy. a southern economy. That's right. right. And actually, at this point, a global economy yeah. because yeah. a lot of cotton is actually coming from places like India mm-hmm. as well. So when we see things like jute, those are be- going to make burlap sacks. Um, the, this was like a burlap capital of the world. And there was a big company called the Emanu- American Manufacturing Company um, that a lot of these natural grasses were going to. Of course, Standard Oil, part of Standard Oil, has its home here on the Brooklyn waterfront with Astral Oil in Greenpoint. So all of and then something that wasn't stored here, but was stored in other places, which is like paled this stuff in comparison in terms of flammability is saltpeter. Saltpeter, which is essentially a a material that creates gunpowder. So wow. like the literal ingredients of gunpowder <laughs> right, right, <laughs> are right, being stored right. in these warehouses. There was another fire that took place a couple decades before this in which one of those warehouses exploded so so forcefully that people could see the explosion from miles away. It's like a remarkable thing to to think about. You know, I think one of the things that I was really surprised about learning about Empire Stores is that this is emblematic of not just how central this was to Brooklyn's economy, but how central Brooklyn was to these kind to the, the this global, global trade. Economy. Yes. And uh, you know, like yes, we are Brooklyn Historical Society, and we like to joke about being Brooklyn exceptionalists. But there is something to kind of marvel at, right? Like how significant Brooklyn was historically as a site of trade and commerce. People who would come to the Brooklyn waterfront would say that depending on where which warehouse you were in, it was like you know, being in the tropics or being in South America or being in you know what they called the Orient. So it was almost like a sensory transportation to a different place especially because all of these commodities of course felt and smelled and gave off a sort of an ethos of the place um so yeah i mean it really was a a crucible of global capitalism you know one of the things julie that's interesting in thinking about this building, Empire Stores, and our new location is thinking about who our neighbors mm-hmm. are and 
who they used to be mm -hmm. um, in this this area. I mean, we've spent a lot of time focusing on how um, this was a center of commerce and trade, and and one could come away from that thinking no one lived here, right? And, which would be wrong because um, the area that our new museum in was a working class neighborhood. Um, in the 19th century, working people lived very close to where they worked. And in the 20th century, um, the neighborhood sort of adjacent to what is Dumbo, now called Vinegar Hill, continued to be a place where many different people, different backgrounds, ethnicities, races, um, lived um, and built institutions and communities and continue to live to this day. And when we were talking about in the, the previous segment about the challenges of kind of reconstructing the history of a working space for working class people. And I think similarly, there's that some kind of challenge of, of reconstructing the history of working class people's history in where they live. Uh, and this is where, you know, I like oral history, of course. Oral history helps us fill in some of those gaps. And for this segment of Voices of Brooklyn, we are going to listen to a narrator who lived and grew up in the Dumbo neighborhood. So this is from one of our, our recently processed collections. It's from the Hispanic Communities Documentation Project, um, which was initiated in 1988. It's a big collection. It's got over 50 interviews um, that were conducted basically to document the experiences of Brooklyn residents who came from places like Puerto Rico, Panama, Ecuador, and a bunch of other Central and South American nations. So most of the oral histories in this collection were taken between 1988 and 1989. And I'm very happy to say that you can explore all of these interviews from this collection on Brooklyn Historical Society's new oral history portal, which is brooklynhistory.org slash oral history. The particular narrator that we're listening to is Angela Fontanez. And she was born in the Bronx in 1943, but she grew up in uh, living with her stepfather and mother on Washington Street in Dumbo. In this clip, she describes what it was like living and growing up there. Sand Street was exciting in those days. We had a lot of tattoo parlors. We got all the Navy activity, a lot of the ships came in there. A lot of tattoo parlors, a lot of bars. Remember my father used to go to a barber shop on Sand Street. And then I used to go, sometimes I would have to go and, and get him and was like going to this place where there was all these men and was like, I would run, make a beeline to the other end. But there were a lot of bars, a lot of tattoo parlors, and different kind of stores. My grandmother didn't live in that area at the time, lived on Sand Street at the time. She was a rumor in the house of a friend on Sand Street, so I would go to Sand Street a lot to visit her. She later moved to the projects also, and whenever a ship came in from a Spanish-speaking country, she would always bring a few sailors over. Uh, for a home-cooked meal, you know, this sort of thing. But it was always a lot of in and out. Yeah, I love Angela's description of Sand Street because that's what Sand Street was. It was, it was, I think it was like, I'm not trying to find the right word. Like, some people described it as seedy. Yeah. It was like, yeah. a, so, sort of seen as a little bit of a red well, light so, district. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was so, actually a place that was well-known for having a very, 
um, thriving underground queer culture. Right, it was the place right, where there were right. actually a lot of gay and lesbian bars. Um, well, so this is tattoos the thing, right? were so, famous. Stan Street tattoos are yeah, famous. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know? so here's the thing: like one of the things you do when you think about oral histories is you think about like why someone remembers it or how someone mm-hmm. remembers what they remember. Uh, and part of the the thing of thinking about like what is prominent in someone's memories and in trying to understand the associations that they're trying to make with the past is by looking at the frequency of certain phrases and t- tattoos, tattoos and tattoo parlors and bars appear or are heard you know are spoken by this narrator a few times so what does that signal right yeah, I mean, again, I think there are connections here between the 19th century sort of working class experience and the 20th century water working class experience on the waterfront. You know, today we associate waterfront living with like, you know, high rise Williamsburg, mm-hmm. you know, um, wealth, um, the view. It's a sanitized waterfront to some extent. And that was not the case for the majority of New York's history. The waterfront was seen as a place that was sort of a liminal space, a place that you might not want to live, a place that, you know, as we talked about with Hugh Ryan a few uh, like a a while back, um, that offers both like the opportunities um, that a liminal space provides you and sometimes the danger danger. um, that that kind of space provides you. And I just the the vision of sort of young and. Angela kind of darting in and out of the um, the gray area that is like her father's like fraternal yes. um, sort of interactions mm-hmm. um, and how it might feel like it's flirting a little bit with the danger of this sort of like all male space is fascinating. In this clip, she talks about um, her experiences living in the Farragut houses, which was a fairly new development at the time. The Farragut projects. It's a fascinating microcosm. My floor, the seventh floor. People to my left were black from the south. People to my right were Mexican. Next to them were the Duffies. Next to them was a Puerto Rican family. Next to them was a black family. Next to them was a white family from Texas. I don't know what they were, but they were white. Tall guy and very short wife, tons of kids. And so it went, and the and the and the that floor I think was an example of what the population was as the years went on, and you got more Spanish and Black, and the Farragut projects became predominantly. But initially, you had a significant white population, and it was very mixed, as I said. Just to kind of give people a sense, the Farragut houses were completed between 1951 and 52, and I think in this oral history, Angela. Uh, Fontana says that they moved in in the mid 50s so it was a fairly new development Uh, this was a time where public housing was occupied by a diverse group of people and what was really fascinating to me about this clip is that she she pretty much maps she maps the building out for us Mm -hmm. and she's like on this floor and across the hall Mm -hmm. and down the hall and the next door down and it's really um, a sense of who lived there Uh, and then she also talks about the change over time and I think we hadn't talked a lot about the presence of of residents in in this neighborhood especially in the 20th century yeah and Farragut is still around today it is still home the Farragut houses are still home to about 3,000 Brooklynites Mm -hmm. 
Um, and the way that that, um, that housing community um, um, functions and interacts with the rest of the neighborhood has really been shaped by the way that that landscape has changed right. over time. Right. Right. So the BQE cutting through the neighborhood, taking down a lot of the commerce along Sand Street and other places. And then, of course, the gentrification that we see happening in Dumbo in um, the sort of the repurposed um, post-industrial landscape. Mm -hmm. A lot of those old warehouses and factories have become really high value residences. Right. Yeah. And I, I think it has created a stark contrast. Yeah. The, the income disparity between people who live in Farragut and people who live in Dumbo is remarkable. It's something like a thousand percent wow. difference. Right. And I think sometimes um, that contributes to the sort of the silencing of Farragut as part of the Dumbo community writ large, which is something that I think we're committed here at BHS to doing our best to remedy. We have spent this whole episode talking about our new space in Dumbo and have given very little attention to our old space, but things are still hopping at the Brooklyn Historical Society headquarters in Brooklyn Heights. Um, so the event that I am most excited about this month is one that's taking place on Thursday, July 6th. Um, it's called Gone Fishing, Brooklyn's favorite forgotten pastime, and it's about, of course, fishing. So um, Jared Murphy, who is the executive publisher of City Limits, is going to be leading a discussion with Sean Dixon, who is an environmental law advocate at the Hudson River Keeper and a professor, as well as Michael Louie, who is a fisherman and a representative of the Brooklyn Urb Urban Anglers Association. And they're going to be talking about the realities of today's urban fishing landscape um, and it's going to get into some of my favorite topics, including dirty water. Uh, so yeah, Julie and water. You <laughs> dirty just can't, water. You can't get away from it. Yeah. <laughs> so the most important thing you may learn is, uh, can I actually eat a fish from anywhere near uh, New York? That's what they're going to tell us, among and many other things. So that's Thursday, July 6th. Um, the event is at 6.30 p.m. It's um, only $5 for general admission and, of course, free for members. You can sign up online and we'll include the link on our show notes the event that i'm excited about in july is is special for many reasons one because it is the culmination event of the voices of crown heights project which we've been doing here for about two years and two because the moderator of this program is joy ann reed the msnbc host and author who also happens to be a college mate of mine so a longtime friend and a crown heights resident and so we'll be having this discussion that looks at the past of Crown Heights and its future in light of all of the rapid change that the neighborhood has been undergoing. And this program takes place Tuesday, July 18th. The doors open at 6 p.m. The event begins at 6.30. It is free, and we'll be posting the link for you to RSVP. And with this episode of Flatbush in Maine, we've made Brooklyn history. You can learn more about Flatbush in Maine at brooklynhistory.org slash flatbush-maine. There you'll find more details from each episode, pictures of documents and artifacts, and clips and info on oral histories. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and rate us on any podcast platform you use. Our show music is by Joe Schloss. Find out more about him at josephsehloss.com. Tune in each month for lots more Brooklyn history. From Brooklyn Historical Society, we are Julie Golia and Zahir Ali.